0: Alright, we are recording. Okay, well thanks for coming back. Um, Hopefully I didn't scare you off the first night. And um, let's start out in a word of prayer. And I think we're going to go a little slower tonight. So if you have more questions, it's okay to go on tangents. Last week was more of an overview. But tonight we're just going to kind of... We may not even get to Abraham. We may just do Cain and Noah and we're just going to go on our merry way. So if you have a lot of questions, that's good. So let's pray. And then did everybody get a handout? There should be enough for everybody. Did everybody get... <clears throat> and basically, it's, it's, all, it's, it's basically what's on the screen is on here, but you have an opportunity to write notes on the side and just do what you need to do. So let's pray, and then we'll jump right in. Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather again tonight to um, learn more about um, the Old Testament, especially Genesis, Lord. What an what a great book of beginnings. And Lord, um, we, we see a lot of things there about your word, about sin, about grace. And Father, I just pray that tonight um, we, would, we would see what we need to see there, that it, it would glorify you above all things and that um, we would grow closer to you through this. And it wouldn't just be a mere academic exercise where we just learn knowledge for knowledge's sake, but it would really draw us closer to you. And Lord, uh, be, be part of, of what we are about as believers. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you remember, last week we ended up... By the way, how many of you guys did read Genesis? <clears throat> or at least attempt to read most of it. Good, okay, good. You did your homework. I'm, <clears throat> I'm surprised you even raised your hand, so that's good.
1: <laughs>
0: that's good. We ended last week with the whole issue of Genesis chapter 3 of Adam and Eve falling into sin and God covering them with animal skins as a picture of Jesus' atonement on the cross. But one of the things that we didn't talk about last week that I kind of left us hanging on, and let me um, get my notes open here real quick, was the whole issue of what, what's called original sin. Now, when we hear the term original sin, we're not talking like the very first sin that Adam and Eve committed. We're talking about the sin that has been um, given down to us through Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve sinned, they brought sin into the world. And so what I've got here is uh, Romans 5, 12. And Romans 5.12 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Uh, That one man that they're talking about there is obviously Adam. So when Adam sinned, he is the representative of the human race. When he sinned, every single person born since Adam, besides Jesus, is born with the sin nature. Okay? Now... That's how sin came into the world. That's why they covered themselves. They were guilty. And um, you know, a lot of people ask, well, how did, you know, why do we have natural disasters? And why is there genocide? And why is there war? And why is there cancer? And why is there death? Why are there all these evil things? Well, it's because Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they brought sin into the human race and every single human being has inherited that sin. It's called original sin, inherited sin, imputed sin. All of us who are born are born what we call in Adam. It's an expression being born in Adam means we're born in sin. We need the second Adam, Jesus, to come and take away our sin. Now, I was going to pass out a chart, but I don't think I'm going to do that. Um, I do have a chart A comparison chart, um, and I can maybe give that to you after the class, but it shows four different views on original sin. You've got the Pelagian view, the semi-Pelagian view, the Arminian view, and the Calvinistic view, and they're all side by side. And so I don't want to bore you and, and go into a lot of detail with that tonight. It's more of a handout of just how each group that believes that certain belief system understands original sin. Um, And so the first one, Pelagianism, is really more of a heresy. It was denounced by the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church. It's a heresy. Semi-Pelagianism, Arminianism, Calvinism, all three of those are views that the evangelical church holds to. Um, It's it's more of an intramural debate on which one you're going to actually adhere to. But all three of those are pretty much within the mainstream Obviously, you know I have certain opinions on which one you know, to hold to, but I'm not going to bore you with that. So I'll give that to you afterwards. But what I want us to do is I really want us to dive into the story of Cain and Abel. So Adam and Eve <coughs> sinned. They're banished from the temple. As you remember last week, we talked about the garden almost being like a temple. They're banished from that. God still shows them grace. Could God have killed Adam and Eve right there on the spot? and said we're done but he shows them grace he covers them with animal skins as a picture of jesus and says we're going to move forward with the human race okay but there's that prophecy remember in genesis three fifteen, and it's the big question that we need to re- keep remembering is what does genesis three fifteen say the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent so all throughout genesis here's the big question and actually all throughout the Bible. What is the fate or what is the future of this seed? Because if you look, it seems like from the very first time Eve has a child, it looks like the seed is snuffed out. And eventually we know that the seed goes through, um, it goes through Seth, it goes through Noah, it goes through Abraham, and then, I mean, all the way down to David, and then eventually... The Bible says that that Jesus is the ultimate seed. But but getting from Eve all the way to Jesus, you can see the storyline in the Bible how there's twists and there's turns. What's going to happen to the seed of the woman? Okay? So let's look at the story of Cain and Abel, and we'll see some interesting things emerge right from the very beginning of the family. And let's just do a side note here. You guys help me out here. During the time of Cain and Abel, was there internet? No, okay. Was there television violence? There's no other human beings, okay? So when Cain kills Abel, can we say the society caused him to do that? Now, today society does influence that, but what caused him to do that was what? Sin. So you can take a child or a person and totally remove them from society in hopes that they're sheltered, but what's still in their heart? Sin. Okay, now you want to protect children. Obviously, we're not saying like, don't protect children, but we're just saying that sin was there from the very beginning in Cain's heart. So let's read this together. Genesis chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Now, Adam knew his Eve, his wife. Let me teach you a Hebrew word there. You've probably heard yada. Anybody ever heard the word like yada, yada? Yada. Yada means to know. And we're all adults in here. It doesn't just mean to have... Cognitive knowledge. It means to know in an intimate way. Oftentimes that term is used for God knowing us. So there's this very intimate knowledge that that Adam had with his wife. And then what happened? She conceived and bore Cain saying, and I want you to pay attention to her words here. What does she say? I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. What's her attitude when she first has the baby? Look what... I produced, wow, I'm pretty special. God kind of helped me, but I produced Cain. Now, if we understand what Cain's name means, do I have it on there? Cain's name means to get, to possess. I got this guy. I possess this guy. Now, something about Hebrew names, something about names in the Old Testament, names mean something. Remember, this is an oral culture. If you were to hear the name Cain, He got, he possessed. What are you automatically thinking? There's something kind of sinister about this kid. His name doesn't quite settle. I got, I possessed. Now she bore a a second son. Look at verse 2 again. She bore his brother, Abel. Abel means breath, vapor. And how you say Abel in Hebrew is... That almost sounds, It's like a breath. He's here one moment, and he's gone. He's here, but just for a short breath. Okay, so the names of these two boys are going to tell you something about him before the story even begins. One, I got. One, I Vapor. Breath. He's only going to be on the scene for a short moment. Okay, let's keep reading. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep, and Cain a worker of the ground. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where's Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. All right, some observations from this story number one what was Cain's sin actually what were his sins plural there's seven sins of Cain in this passage of scripture the seven sins of Cain it wasn't just one sin we often think of murder as the sin but there was sin that led up to murder and there was sin after murder So it wasn't just the outward action of killing his brother. There were seven sins of Cain. All right, let's look at Hebrews 11.4, okay? Because if you remember a couple years ago when we preached through Hebrews 11, uh, we, we, we went back and forth between the Old Testament and we looked at those people of faith. Let's just look at what Hebrews 11 has to say about Abel. Because we have a New Testament commentary from the writer of Hebrews on Abel's faith. And I think it's important to see what the New Testament gives as a commentary on the Old Testament. Yes, Dave. Yes. Yes. Who would have killed Cain? The question is, and that's the ultimate question, is were there other people on the earth at that time? The only answer that I can give is that probably there were maybe after the fact other children of Adam and Eve that weren't listed and that from the very beginning to get things started, there had to be sex between brother and sister to get things going. And I don't even know of any other way to get it, to get it moving. Um, and so at that point, sometimes, if you remember from last week, remember what we said about Hebrew narrative? The narrator's not going to give us all the information. So we may not know how many other people were on the earth. That's not pertinent to his story. His story is, how does this talk about fate of the seed so to answer your question dave i really don't know but most scholars would say that adam and Eve had other children and and they 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 multiplied and and populated that area yeah because what he says here is in the course of time yeah we don't know the chronology of how how long a time that and if you remember they lived a long time back then you know 800 900 years so okay okay so Hebrews eleven four 4 through 5, um, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. So this says that Abel had a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. So we've got to ask the question, what made Abel's sacrifice more acceptable than Cain's? And what was Cain's sin? Okay, so the first sin of Cain, he's looking religious, and we'll talk about this when we actually look at some of the Hebrew here. He's looking religious, but his heart is not totally dependent upon God. Now, both boys would have known, probably either directly from God or from their parents, about what? what a blood sacrifice would be. Remember back in Genesis 3.21? God killed an animal and covered them. And so they would have known, and this is an assumption that we're assuming here because the text doesn't tell us, that the acceptable sacrifice to God was a killed animal. Okay? Abel comes with a conscious expression of his need for atonement because the whole system in the Old Testament of sacrificing an animal shows that I'm a sinner, I have guilt, I need blood to atone for my sin. And so when he brings the firstborn of his flocks, he's saying to God, I know I'm a sinner. I need atonement. I need blood to cover my sin. This, and God looks upon that as an acceptable way of, of bringing in a sacrifice. In contrast, Cain brings a crop. A crop is something that he could produce. It wasn't a blood sacrifice. In addition... Cain brings it in the wrong manner. I want to give you a little bit of a Hebrew here because you don't quite get it in your English translations. But if you look at verse 3 of chapter 4, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. If you look back at the literal Hebrew, that word fruit of the ground really means a portion it could mean like there was a whole cluster of grapes and he brought one grape. Okay, it wasn't even like a full crop. It was a portion. It was a meager secondhand offering of a portion of his crop. Okay, so Cain's basically saying, okay, I know I got a sacrifice to God. I know I got to give him something. I'll just kind of give him my leftovers. I'll give him like, like I have a whole thing of bananas. I'll give him one banana. I'll, I'll appease God by giving him, you know, he needs to have a sacrifice. I'll give him... A fruit. Okay? What does Abel bring? Verse 4, he brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. So he brings the best, the first. His sacrifice shows that he is bringing God his best. He's bringing God his first. It's not tokenism. you guys understand what I mean by tokenism? Like I'm going to, you know you see a guy standing there on the side of the road and you know in your heart that you feel guilty. I need to give him some money. So you walk by and you throw him a quarter to appease your conscience. I'm going to throw him a token dime. That's tokenism. That's what Cain is doing. But he's looking religious, right? Because what's he doing? He he could have not brought a sacrifice, right? He still goes through the religious motions, brings a sacrifice, but where is his heart? His heart is not there. So sin number one is trying to look religious while at the same time just kind of putting on airs. Okay, second sin. Cain was angry with God. Why? What does it say here? Verse 5, But for Cain and his offering he had no regard, so Cain was very angry and his face fell. What should he have done at that point? What would you have done at that point? confessed your sin said god i'm guilty and go kill an animal and bring it back and say god accept this because i know that you're a merciful god but what does he do he goes over and pals and has a pity party and gets mad at god god it's your fault he's angry at god he's not repentant he's not um what's the word well i guess repentant His, his heart's not stricken okay number three Cain didn't listen to the warning of sin crouching in his door. What is God in His grace? Now what could have God done? What could have God done in his justice with Cain at that moment? Wrong sacrifice? Fire on you. You're dead. What does God say to him? Look at verse seven. "If you do well, will you not be accepted? In other words, go back and bring a right sacrifice, Cain, and I'll accept it. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, its desires for you, but you must rule over it. He almost talks about sin being a wild animal that's ready to pounce on him. So God gives him a warning and says, What? Cain, if you, don't, if you don't get it under control, this sin's gonna get you. It's gonna consume you. I'm giving you a warning in my love, in my grace to repent. Now I put a passage of scripture up there, Romans chapter 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? So if God gives you a second chance, what's that purpose? Not for you to keep on living in sin or keep on doing the wrong thing. It's to give you an opportunity to repent because he's being kind to you. So really, if you look at God here in Cain, God's being kind to Cain. He's saying, Cain, I'm going to give you a warning. Sin is crouching at your door. Come, repent. Come back to me. You'll find grace. Give me the appropriate sacrifice. Give me your first fruits, and you will do well. God says you will do well. Okay, so what's the fourth sin? Cain was jealous of his brother. I mean, there was jealousy. He realized that God had favor for Abel's offering and not for his, and so there's this sibling rivalry. How many of you have, have sibling rivalry among your kids, brothers, sisters? How many of you grew up with sibling rivalry? By the way, we'll talk about this in a moment. This is a side note. I think it comes up later on the notes. When you look at the book of Genesis, there's an issue between brothers. Sibling rivalry goes all the way through the book of Genesis, and it starts right here. It's a theme. Jacob, Esau. Joseph, his brothers. His brothers. you know, Abraham didn't, his brother's not mentioned, but you've got this whole brother motif and it starts right here, sibling rivalry. Okay, number five, this is an obvious sin. What did he do? He murdered, okay? He had went out in the field and attacked and killed his very own brother. Now, not, think about sin here for a moment, okay? This is the very first, at least recorded sin physically acted upon after Adam and Eve committed their sin. And what type of sin is it? It's murder against the very closest person in your family, your brother. So it's a big deal. It's not like he's just some, you know, like, it wasn't like involuntary manslaughter where he came around the corner on a cart, you know, his ox got out of control and he knocked a kid down. It wasn't like, you know, he saw a person in an alley and he went and mugged a, a stranger. It was premeditated. How was it premeditated? Look what he says. Let's go out into the field so nobody can see what's going on. I can cover my tracks. And then he kills his brother. Okay? Number six. (laughs) That's not bad enough. Cain lied and tried to cover it up. Now, here's where we have the courtroom scene again because look at verse 9. The Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Now, the same thing with Adam and Eve last week. Did God not know? What's God doing here? It's a motif in Hebrew literature called a courtroom narrative. God is the judge and he's summoning Cain out into the courtroom and he's questioning him as a way for Cain's conscience to be convicted. So when you hear the God say, where's your brother? What should have Cain said? God, you know all things. You're the creator of heaven and earth. You saw me kill him. I ask your forgiveness. What does he say? I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? He lied. He covered it up. Okay, the seventh sin of Cain, this may be kind of hard to see, but he really demonstrates self-pity at being banished, and he doesn't repent. Look at what happens. God curses him and says, because, you're, you know, because you shed innocent blood, you're going to be banished from this area. You're going to be a wanderer. And look at verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, "'My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you've driven me today from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and wander on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me, Wow, 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 God.'" Never once do you hear a repentance. Never once do you, do you see him. What could he have done at that point? He could have appealed to the atonement and said, I remember the story mom and dad told about how they sinned and God covered them with animal garments. I saw how my brother bought, brought an animal. What I should do now in my sin is to accept the punishment of God and appeal to his mercy and appeal to an atonement. But what does he do? You never see Cain repenting. In the midst of all this, does God show grace to Cain? God still shows grace. Don't let anybody ever tell you that the God of the Old Testament is a God of justice and He's mean and the God of the New Testament is all nice, okay? God is just in the Old Testament. He's just in the New. God is loving in the Old Testament. He's loving in the New. His character doesn't change. But I want you to see, we're going to see a lot of grace in the Old Testament. He shows grace to Cain by putting a mark on him so that he would not be, um, he would not be... uh, Murdered, But then it says, Cain, in verse 16, Cain went away from the presence of the Lord. He went away from the presence of the Lord. It's a sad a sad statement. Any questions on Cain and Abel? Yes? I don't have a question, I just have a comment. Sure. Um,
1: in verse 9, he says, am I my brother's keeper? I immediately thought, how disrespectful could you ever speak to God that way? And it's like a mirror just flashed in my face. Because, like, I do that daily. I'll let you know I didn't murder somebody, and but I failed daily, and that, that just hit me. Like, wow, I need to be repenting because I'm, I, I'm very disrespectful to God.
0: Okay. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it's pretty disrespectful. I mean, and this is back in the day when God, like, spoke to you. You know, it wasn't like the Holy Spirit in you, and, and, and Cain's so flippant, isn't he? It? It's almost just like, I can get, I can pull one over on God. I'm not my brother's keeper. Who are you, God, to get on to me? It's kind of this attitude of... Yeah, but can you, you imagine your son telling
1: you, I'm not my brother's keeper?
0: Yeah. And how many times yeah. do you really, in, in
1: what we say and
0: do, Right. that's how we disrespect God. We don't say that to him, but... Yeah. Well, here's the question. Okay, if, if if Abel's name is Vapor, was he on the scene very long? He was a vapor. Okay, here's the question. The seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent. Who are we left with? We're left with Cain. Is he a good choice to carry on? The, no. Actually, you know, Cain is more in the line of, you know, a spiritual, you know, spiritual... Um, manifestation of of Satan, if you will. Okay? Now, I want you to see a change in Eve's wording. Look at verse 17. Cain knew his wife. She conceived... Oh, wait, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go down to verse 25. I'm sorry. We'll come back to that, but go down to verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. What did she say before with Cain? I got a man with the help of God. What does she say now? God has appointed for me a son. And the word Seth means appointed or given, I think is what your notes say. Oh, here it is. The term brother shows up a lot in Genesis. Okay, let's look at Cain's lineage Cain's lineage ends with a guy named Lamech. Lamech is the, ulti- Lamech is the beginning of this, of this evil that ends up actually ushering in Noah. Okay? So I want you to read about Lamech. Okay. Look at um, verse 23. Lamech said to his wives. wives, should that clue you into something? He's the first polygamist. Not one man, one woman. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I've killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. He's singing a song to his two wives about how he killed a kid. And he's celebrating murder and polygamy. That's where Cain's lineage ends with this epitome of this evil man. And that word young man there, I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man. I think the King James Version may say lad. It could have been a small child. It's like he's a grown man that murdered a small child. He looked at me wrong. Or maybe he kicked me in the shin. Or maybe, you know, whatever he did, I killed him. And I'm going and writing a poem to my two wives about how violent a man I am. Okay, That's that's Okay, that's Lamech. Okay? That's the beginning of corruption and evil. It just intensifies on the earth. I yes.
1: I didn't look ahead to see if you're gonna say anything about that, but at the end of that chapter where it says at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Yeah, we Are you
0: gonna talk about yeah, we will. Yeah, we will talk about if I forget, Don, bring bring me back to it. God shows grace to Eve, grants her another son, Seth. Seth will carry on the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent. What did you say, Seth's name meant? Seth's name, I think, means to 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 be granted. Let's see, verse. Let me see. My appointed or granted or yeah, appointed or granted. It's God. God. um, It's almost the opposite of Cain. Cain is I got. Seth is God gave. Okay, It's, it's kind of that whole. It's not really a light word, as we remembered last word, to play on words, but words mean something in, in, in names, your, your names. Okay. Yes, let's just stop there, Don, and talk about, at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. What that, what that means is really people began to pray. That, that's, a, that's, that's a praying type of, 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 of thing there. And notice that it was right after Seth. Okay, so you almost have this interlude, right? Adam and Eve in the garden, perfect fellowship with God. They sinned. They got, you know, the cursing of the land, the cursing of the serpent, childbearing. Then you've got Cain and Abel. Then you've got Lamech. And all of a sudden, it's like you've got this snapshot of evil. And all of a sudden, Seth is on the scene, breath of fresh air, God granted. Now people began to call upon the name of the Lord. There's hope. Okay, the seed of the woman is going to crush the, crush the head of the serpent. We've got a new man on the scene named Seth. Seth is the embodiment of a new people, a spiritual seed of, uh, of Eve that begin to call upon the name of the Lord. They begin to seek the Lord. Um, they're people that pray. Is that kind of what you're asking, Dawn? Well, I don't know. For me, I was wondering if maybe because
1: of all the dysfunction up here and the murder... And then here's Seth, and then we're still wondering about the seed, and I'm just wondering if people are beginning to call upon the name of the Lord, like the groanings for a deliverer. Yeah. Because they're starting to Cease recognize it. depravity. Yes. To me, that's what I was wondering. That's a good point. If this is what that meant. maybe it
0: is. Yeah, did it. everybody hear what Don, Don's basically saying that mm-hmm. when people see depravity, they're crying out for a deliverer. Where's this promised seed? Who's going to redeem us? Who's going to make things right? We live in a dysfunctional world. We, we, need, we need to make, have someone make it right. We need to call upon God to do that. Yes, Brent. Well, this goes back sort of to the last uh, weeks. But one thing I've always thought of is when it says, he'll crush oh, your head and you shall strike his heel is the fact that the war is won. Right. But the battles still go on. Right. Satan's still going to have to take his shots. Right.: Yeah, let me give you an, an illustration. It's a good point, Brent. On All right, do you guys remember I was like, do you guys remember World War II? How many were there? None of us I were there. <laughs> I remember the good old days when I was on a Navy boat. No, All right. World War II. OK, you had D-Day. What was D-Day? D-Day was the day where the troops landed on the beach in Normandy, the largest invasion of Allied troops. Basically, they pushed the um, Axis powers, the Nazi powers back. For all intents and purposes, that was what? That was literally the, the end of World War II, for all intents and purposes. Okay. But was Hitler just going to say, I'm going to give up? No. He instigated the Battle of the Bulge, which was the bloodiest battle of the entire war. It wasn't until a year later that there was the unconditional surrender of Germany and there was peace. That was VE Day, Victory in Europe Day. So between D-Day and VE Day, there was an intense battle. But the battle for all intents and purposes has already been won. Christ, when he died on the cross, disarmed Satan. The battle's been won. That was D-Day, okay? Is Satan, like, done away with? No, he's still alive and well. We're not to V-E-Day yet when he's going to be thrown into the lake of fire. So between now and when Satan's end is coming, the Bible says he's come down to the earth with great wrath, to try to destroy God's people. He's like Hitler on a rampage to try to inflict as much damage as he can because he knows the war's lost. Okay, so on the cross, Christ won it. He won the the war, but there's a lot of skirmishes on the way that Satan's going to try to inflict because he knows the end of the story. Does that make sense? Okay, and that leads us to depravity. Look at Genesis 6-5. This is a scary passage of Scripture. This is a really scary passage of Scripture. We think our society's bad. Let's look at the world at the time of Genesis 6, verse 5. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his hearts was only evil continually. That's pretty bad. Everybody had evil intentions, continually evil, doing evil. It was a world of violence. What have we seen so far? Killing brothers, taking two wives, Killing small children from the very beginning, as a result of Adam and Eve, when sin came into the world, there is violence, there is hardship, there's the world is not the way it's supposed to be, and so what we have is Noah. Noah comes exactly in the middle of the genealogies between Adam and Abraham. Just to let you know, yes, Marcy. Before we go there, yes. Back
1: up in six three. I have read this several times. His days shall be 120 years. It's it's talking about mm-hmm. that people aren't going to live over 120 years, and yet people are still living over
0: 100. Yeah, and, and the question is, is that we take the Bible literally, obviously. But in a situation like that, does that mean that, you know, when you're 121, God lied, and that you're not, <laughs> I mean, that he's, or is it, is it, or is it him saying that, it's going to be around, you know, they live 900 years, but it's going to kind of be around that 120. There may be some exceptions of people that live longer. I don't know if that's a hard and fast rule to say, you know, if somebody lives to be 125, we can't trust the Bible. Isn't he being kind of prophetic there, though? Yeah. He's also talking about the fact that it's 120 years before no one comes. No. I think he's saying that's how, that's how, that's how, old, that's how long man's going to live to be about 120 years. That's a thought I've heard before. you can up the It says years. that. It uh, says that. Yeah. A, It what does it say?
1: It says uh, probably the span of time between this proclamation and the flood. Oh, okay. It may also refer to an individual's
0: lifespan. So it gives both, both yeah. of those there. So really it's one of those things that scholars would say it's a secondary issue that's not I'm not saying it's not a big deal but it could be it well, could be I still
1: thought that people were living
0: to be 7 800 years old. Oh at that time yeah. Right mm-hmm. right but not until like after after there's like the before flood generation and then the after flood generation it totally Noah changed lived
1: well, I'm thinking that it's kind of like Abraham or Adam you do have a long lifespan. Noah you're not going to have the Decreased population of Earth, and <laughs> so I think Noah kind of lived a long time and had more and more kids, and then well, we are, were, came over, yeah. Well, you don't have kids until they're a hundred years
0: old. Yeah. yeah. Well, and and here's one thing. Well, when we talk about the flood, we'll, we'll find out. At least I kind of have a scientific theory of why people live shorter after the flood than before the flood. But when we get to when we get to that, I may UV rays.
1: Why they always put howls? the sons were born? Because, you know, it, it tells you the genealogy line to Noah, and it always tells you how old they were when they begot this son, and they have many other sons and daughters. It's more it's of a...
0: like the firstborn son. Yeah, it's a, son? More of it, it's, a, it's a formula that they use in Hebrew because it was such a male-dominated culture with procreating and having an heir, that that was an important information to be able to, tra- to trace your genealogy so uh.
1: it was always the firstborn son, how old they were when the
0: firstborn son y- yeah. yeah so they could have
1: had daughters
0: and that was the they're not going to mention they're not going to mention they usually won't mention daughters unless the daughters play a, point, a part in the in the narrative not because the bible sexist, but I- again we're talking about a male dominated society where having male sons was an important thing okay here's Zach. yeah yeah okay Let's talk about a theological issue with Noah because a lot of times when you, um, when I was growing up, I was taught this about Noah until I understood really what it meant. Because I think if you get the cart before the horse, you end up with a almost a works-based salvation, and you don't see grace. And let me explain that. Look at Genesis six, verse nine. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Okay, he had three distinct characteristics. He was righteous in a world of what? Violence. He's blameless. Does that mean he's without sin? No, it just means that he was a man that walked in integrity, and he walked with God. He had a close personal relationship with God. Okay, keep that in mind. Which, okay, question about Noah. Noah. What should be was? <laughs> was God's choice of Noah based upon something God saw in Noah, or did God decide to show grace to him simply because God wanted to show grace to him? Oftentimes, you'll have people say, the reason God picked Noah was because of the fact that he was a righteous man, he was blameless, and he walked with God. That qualified him to be worthy enough for God to say, okay, you're going to be the family, I'm going to choose to do the ark. Question. Which comes first, verse 8 or verse (laughs) 9? Verse 8 comes before verse 9, okay? Go back, it's not a trick question. Go back up to verse 8. Before these characteristics are written about God, but Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Why? That Hebrew word there, found favor, really means God graced him. God showed mercy to Noah because he wanted to show mercy to Noah. It wasn't because Noah had a resume that made him worthy enough for God to say, okay, you look like a good candidate, I'll pick you. No, God took initiative and said, I'm going to to choose Noah to be the one to build the ark. And as a result of grace, then Noah lived out his relationship with God. Does that make a big difference when you talk about grace? Let's just think about the gospel here for a moment. Does God save us because we have credentials of how good we are? Or does God save us because he chooses to save us? And there's nothing in us that would make us worthy enough to do that. And so we've got to keep from thinking that these are superheroes that somehow, yes, they were righteous people. Yes, they walked with God. But in a few moments, we're going to see Noah got drunk. So don't just think these guys are are superheroes and that because they're such great people, God said, you know, I'm going to... Because it gives us hope. You're going to see God using people that you wouldn't expect him to use to carry on the seed. And you look back and say, why in the world would God choose these people? And let me just take a side note because this verse is popping into my head. Let's turn to the New Testament. You'll have to pardon me. We're going to have to jump to the New Testament. You guys okay with that? I know this is an Old Testament class, but... um, Sometimes scriptures pop into my head and we've just got to go on a tangent because that's the way my mind works, so you're going to have to... Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. This is a good reminder for us. It's a good reminder when we look at the characters of the Old Testament and the New Testament, when we look at Christians, when we look at who we are. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Okay, listen to what Paul says. Okay? For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus, whom God made our wisdom and our righteous and our sanctification and redemption. Therefore, as is written, let, no, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what's Paul saying to the Corinthians? You weren't all that, and God chose you. And God's not about the big and the powerful and the fancy and the, and the equipped. God takes the weak, the lowly, the insignificant, and that's what God chooses to use and to save. And so when we look at our lives, hopefully it gives you hope. Because when we look around at this room, look around at this room, are we all that? No. But can God do amazing things through people that aren't all that? Yes, so that at the end of the day, it's not about us, it's about Him. If we're going to boast, we're going to boast in the fact that God... Gets all the glory for what he's done. And so when we think about these Old Testament characters, keep that in mind. You know, God could have done things a lot differently. I mean, think about just the birth of Jesus. How was Jesus born? A peasant girl, a carpenter, in a manger, on the backside of nowhere, and during the time of the Roman Empire when there was all the wealth and all the power. I mean, he could have been born as Caesar. But God chose what was low and despised and not popular to bring about the things to show His His power. So we got to understand that God showed grace and mercy to Noah first. Okay, what did the flood actually? Ooh, look at those nice, cool graphics. What did the flood actually do? <laughs> Sorry, I did this. Trina Trina usually does my PowerPoint, but I did this. Um, okay, here's what the flood actually does. The flood purges the earth. Of its corruption and violence by disfiguring the earth. Okay, I'm gonna give you a Hebrew play on words here in just a moment. So, first of all, it purges the earth. So, the earth itself is purged. There's so much violence, there's so much wickedness on the physical earth that God's gotta literally purge the physical earth of all of its wickedness. So, the earth itself is purged, but secondly, it's punishing. How many of you grew up with Noah's Ark as a nice, cute story about animals like in a little rainbow? What's the story of Noah's Ark? God destroys the world and saves a family. That's wrath. That's destruction. Um, God is punishing the people. What's the most powerful image in the story? Let's look at 716. And those that entered, male and female... Of all flesh went in as God commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Who closed the door of the ark? God. Isn't that cool? It's kind of like, who's going to close the door? Last one in, lights off. It's God. You know, God shuts the door of the ark. Now, I want to see if I've got this in my notes because the word corrupt, do I have the word corrupt? Let's look here. Um, at the promise. And I'm going to give you a Hebrew play on words. Um, let me see if I can find it here. It is in. Um... Well, let's just look at verse 11 of chapter 6. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will, and I'll give you the translation, corrupt them with the earth. You see how many times the word corrupt is used there? The Hebrew word, here's what God's saying. The earth is corrupt, therefore I'm going to corrupt it. The same word for corrupt is the same word for destroy that God uses. The earth is so destroying itself with violence, I'm going to destroy it. Same Hebrew word. It's a play on words. You're corrupt, okay, you're going to get what you want. You're going to, you're, I'm going to take it to its full extent. The world's corrupt, I'm going to corrupt you even further by bringing a flood. It's going to purge, it's going to punish. Okay, so you don't get that in your English translations, but you see that uh, when, you, when you look back at the original languages. Okay. Um, yes yeah in hebrews yeah he preached but no nobody listened there's a couple of guys in the bible that preached how long would it take to, i mean it took him a long time to build that ark he's up there with this hammer preaching nobody's ever seen rain yet what's this thing called rain what's this thing called flood you're a nutcase noah Jeremiah preached his whole life, never had one convert. There's some of those guys in the Bible that just preached fearlessly and never saw anybody listen to him. Let's talk about covenants for a moment because we're going to have to be introduced to this whole idea of covenant because covenant shows up, especially with Abraham. It's going to show up again with David. There's the new covenant. This whole concept of covenant, God has built from the very beginning of time, actually before time, in eternity past. Okay. Okay. Genesis 6.18 is the very first time the word covenant shows up in the Bible. Look and see what it says in Genesis 6.18. God says, I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wives, your sons' wives, with you. Okay, first thing we need to notice: who's going to establish the covenant? God. It's a one-way covenant. I will do this. Now, some of the covenants are two ways. I will do this if you do this. You do this, and I will do this is a one-way covenant. I'm going to accomplish it. Okay? There are many different covenants in the Old Testament and into the New, but they all have their origin in the sovereign grace of God. So let's talk about the first covenant. The, The Noahic, or the covenant with Noah is not the first covenant in the Bible. What's the first covenant in the Bible? What? Even before Adam and Eve. It's called the covenant of redemption. It was an eternity past before the world was even created. When the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit entered into a covenant that the Father would send the Son to come die for people and institute what we would call salvation. So God had this in mind way back even because it says Jesus was the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the earth. So God had in mind even before Adam and Eve sinned, even before any of this stuff happened, that Jesus would come and die for sinners the covenant of redemption. The covenant of grace. Okay, Genesis 3.15, that's, the, that's like the eternal covenant, but Genesis 3.15, what we've been talking about, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent, that has historically been called the covenant of grace, although the word covenant doesn't show up, okay? Because God promises to do something. What does God say? Let's go back to Genesis 3.15 for a moment. The very first covenant. Anytime God says, I will do something, and we're not required to do anything in return, that's called a one-way covenant. Does God say, in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel, if you obey my commandments and do all that you can to work your way to righteousness. What is it, I mean, is that what it says? God says, I will do this. It's my responsibility. I'm going to do this. So here's the promise God pledges that He alone will establish enmity between Satan and Eve, and that Satan's son will destroy the devil. Now, who are the partakers of this covenant? Eve's seed. Okay? Now, originally, Eve's seed we can trace down to Seth, Noah, Abraham, David, Jesus, but eventually, who are the spiritual seed of Eve? Us, believers. Okay? What's the nature of the covenant? it's unconditional, it's unchangeable. God says, I will do this. If God says he's going to do something, will he go back on his word? Can something thwart God's plan? Can something get in God's way and say, well, I'm going to mess up God's plans? Hopefully by now you've been here around long enough to know that, no, God's plans can't be thwarted. All right. For Jesus is Eve's victorious son who crushes the devil's head on the cross and saves his people. Okay. So, We've got this whole idea of God saying, I'm going to do something. I alone am going to do it. And there's going to be recipients of this. All you have to. What's the only requirement in the covenant of grace for us? How do you get in? Faith. Do you have to do a work? Do you have to save yourself? Do you have to atone for your own sins? God gives you the gift of repentance and faith so that you can believe in Him. And it's, it's always been by faith, by faith. Okay, the Noahic covenant, okay? Noah was already part of Eve's spiritual seed, okay? Because what did it say? Noah found grace, or Noah received grace from God. Was the flood God saving Noah from sin? No, he was saving him from, he was already a partaker of grace. Who were the partakers of the Noahic covenant? Noah and his family alone. Did anybody else participate in that? Was it for anybody else? God said, I'm going to choose one family and one family alone, and they're going to be in the ark. Could have God chosen anybody else? Yes, but he said, for reasons only known to God, it's going to be Noah. Now, what were they saved from? Were Noah and his family saved from hell and sin? They were already graced by God. They were simply saved from God's wrath on the fallen world through a worldwide flood a physical salvation, if you will, of a flood. Not a spiritual salvation, but a physical salvation. What was the promise? No more floods. What does God say? I'm never, ever again going to what? Flood the earth. Now, let me read this Isaiah passage, Isaiah 54, 9 through 10. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, and I will not rebuke you, for the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. That's a powerful. That's a powerful word, isn't it? God is compassionate. God is slow to anger. God has kept his word. God is promising there will be no more flood. Now it doesn't mean that God won't punish the earth because we know it's going to be punished with fire. Okay. What's the token? A rainbow. Every time you see the rainbow, what's it a reminder of? The promise that God's not going to flood the earth, okay. What's the symbolism of Noah's Ark? Is it a happy little story of animals in an ark? Who's the ark? Jesus is the ark. All who come into him are saved from the wrath, not of the flood, but of the wrath of sin. And God closes the door, never to be opened again. You're safe and secure in Christ. Now let's look at Second Peter real quick. Let's turn again to the uh, to the New Testament. Second Petros, Second Peter, three three through twelve. I should have brought a bottle of water in. Second uh, Peter three three through twelve. Okay. Well, let's just start in verse one, since verse three starts kind of in the middle of a sentence. Second Peter three verse one. This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through your apostles. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water, remember that water blob we talked about last week, and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. "'Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in in lives of holiness and godliness?' waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heaven and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So Peter says, in the old days, God destroyed the world with a flood. Now it's going to be similar to the days of Noah. People are going to be scoffing. People are going to be making fun of Christians. There's going to be a lot of just antagonism and it's going to come like like a roaring flood, but this time it's going to be fire that God's going to destroy the earth with. And so what's the motivation, he says, for us to live holy and godly lives as we wait for the coming of Christ? All right. Oh, duh, I got there. I preempted myself. What Corrupt means disfigured and spoiled due to rampant sin. God will destroy. This is the same Hebrew word for corrupt. We just really talked about that. Um, dry land. okay. What was Noah's first response on coming on to dry land? Let's go back to Genesis chapter 8. And let's look at verse 20 through 22. Chapter 8 verse 20, back in Genesis. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done, while the earth remains seed time and harvest cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So what does Noah do when he first reaches dry ground? What's the first thing he does? He worships. He worships God. He praises God for getting him through this. We see a prototype here of building an altar to the Lord, an animal sacrifice, a burnt offering. And so um, this is even before Moses and the law where God prescribed how they were to do that. Moses understood that to God, a sacrifice of praise was the appropriate way to worship him. Okay, let's look at Genesis 9, 6 through 7. And what does this tell us about God's view of humanity and ethical issues? Let's just take a little detour here. Genesis 9, 6 through 7. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image, and you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. What does that tell us about God's view of humanity? And why is that so important for the culture in which we live today? What does he reiterate there that he he said back earlier in Genesis about creation? Even though man was corrupt... After the flood, God reiterates that man is still created in God's image. And therefore, what's wrong? Murder. Do you think we live in a culture where the sanctity of human life is upheld? Why? What do you see around us? Okay. You name it violence, murder, mayhem, abortion um, what prejudice. prejudice, child abuse I mean, do we as a culture value human life okay does and I may preach you from it, does the media help <laughs> or hinder <laughs> so how do we as Christians have a voice for the sanctity of life both inside and outside, the, all life. How do we have a voice for life as Christians? How do we do that in a positive, winsome, godly way? I don't know if we have the answers tonight, but it's something to think about. Yes, Cindy.
1: And, mm. yeah. and self-centeredness. Really? But if I treat <laughs> I'm, people, just, I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm just I am just in me too, <laughs> no. But if I treat people um, with, with care and esteem them more highly than myself and um, treat them civilly, that's going to, that's going to make an impact
0: mm-hmm. because
1: it's very, very different. And so, yes, we need to politically get involved and fight for things like, like uh, be against abortion yes we need to do those things but sometimes we just need to do simple things around
0: us mm-hmm. yeah I think there's the the macro scale of okay we as Christians can get politically involved, but there's the micro day-to-day real life where it's how do you just treat the people that are around you and how do you treat, teach your children? Um, and I think you had a good point about the next generation. We do see this whole new generation. And those of you that, like Don that works in the school system and Terry that works at the college and those of you, and all of you that, the bus drivers, I mean, walk into Walmart. I mean, we you, you see this newer generation of, of young people that don't have a concept of Civility, respect, boundaries, um, and, it, and it all stems back to the fact that we, we've almost got a godless society where it's an authority issue. Because we talked last week about authority. Who created us? God. God has absolute authority over our lives because he owns us by creation, especially by Christians. Not only does he own us by creation, he owns us by redemption because Christ bought us. And so every bit of our lives is to be lived under authority, there's no part of life where you're not going to have an authority structure in your life. You're always going to have somebody in authority over you, whether it's a boss, whether it's going to be a parent, whether it's a um, you know a, a policeman. There, there's always authority structures, and we just need to make sure that we, we, we help the next generation understand that ultimate authority is not because we're trying to be mean people, it's because that's the way God set it up.
1: But also as the just respect towards other people because they were
0: created in God's, God's image, right, right. And see, that's one of the things that we're, you know, we can be really utilitarian and say, you know, treat other, every religion has the golden rule, right? You go talk to a Buddhist today, they'll say, treat others the way you want to be treated. Mm -hmm. Every religion has the golden rule. What makes Christianity different? We take it a step further and say the reason you do that is because people are created in the image of God. They have the stamp of God on them. They have value. And also we do that in light of the cross because Christ laid down his life for us. Christ loved us. Therefore, we will love. In Ephesians, this is just a side note. Um, in Ephesians, at the end of Ephesians, Paul says, forgive as Christ forgave you. Now, if, we, if he just said forgive, nobody would really have a problem with that. I mean, Oprah talks about forgiving. Dr. Phil, you know, heal your inner child and, and go out there and forgive. How's that working for you? You know, all that kind of stuff. What makes Christianity different is forgive as Christ forgave you. It roots it back into the gospel. We don't just forgive to forgive. We forgive because in the cross Christ forgave us. He gives us the grace to do that. We have the power of the Holy Spirit. People are created in God's image. And so we're not just religious people walking around doing good because it's the thing we're supposed to do. We do it because Christ showed us ultimate love. He's given us the power through the Holy Spirit to do it, and we do it out of love for Christ. Is that, you see how Christianity is different than world religions? And world religions, if you mess up, you gotta keep doing stuff to get back in the good graces of the God that you're with. In Christianity, if you mess up, you go back to the cross and ask forgiveness and realize that Christ is, is there for you. So I will stop that little sermon and let's move on. Sean, you were gonna talk about the flood, you said? Oh yeah, the flood. Let's talk about the flood. One thing that we yeah, thanks for reminding me, Brent. Let's um let's draw a picture here. And for those listening online, sorry that you don't have the picture, but you can think about it in your mind. Um, If we look here on page, page, it's page six in my Bible. um, (laughs) Yeah, let's look at chapter seven, verse 11. In the, yeah, chapter 711, or as I used to say when I was growing up, circle K, as opposed to 711, whatever you want to call it. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of the heavens were opened and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights so let's draw a picture here of the earth let's make it Well, we'll make it this color what's this color brown red okay so there's the earth okay what did we talk about last week about this firmament remember the firmament it separated the waters above from the waters below so what's above the firmament Water. And it says there what? God opened the heavens. So somehow God probably removed this firmament so that all the water that was above came what? Crashing down. But what did it say before that? Waters from the deep burst up. So you had not only the pressure of the water coming down from the heavens, but you also had tectonic plate shifting or whatever you want to call it underneath the the, the earth. And that's why when we look at the Earth today, where you have mountains and, all, and people say yeah, it took a million years for the Grand Canyon, no, in one second, when if it burst from the deep and the water came from the top, you can create a huge gulf or you can create the Himalayas because I mean it totally disfigured the Earth. And so, the question before is why do people live so long? Here's just a theory. I don't know if I can prove it, but this firmament may have been something like a greenhouse or a um, protective canopy that allowed plants and animals and people to live longer because they weren't exposed to the UV rays or things like that. And once that canopy, that firmament was opened, then the whole atmosphere of the earth changed to where um, the seasons are maybe a little bit different and then we don't live as long because we're, we have ultraviolet light. That's, that's what some scientists say. Yes? I
1: read, I heard of an ex- experiment that was done, a scientific study, where they doubled the amount of oxygen and doubled the air pressure, and they were able to have regeneration of third-degree burns on a human.
0: Wow. And that, that, I mean, that, that, that could be what it was. Again, remember, the, the Bible's not necessarily a science book that's going to answer all our questions, but we have a text here that says, water burst from the deep, the sky was opened, the earth was disfigured. And so there's got, it wasn't, there's got to be a worldwide flood. Even every non-Christian cultures, if you go back into ancient cultures, every culture has a flood myth. And it all comes from Noah's flood. But they, they, they have that traced down through their history. They just interpret it differently through their gods. But how do you explain a worldwide flood in your culture if it didn't really happen? I think Genesis 10.25 also. What is Genesis 10.25? Oh, yeah, we'll get to, the, yeah. Well, we'll, go ahead, well, go ahead and read that. Genesis 10.25. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know where we're going with that, but yeah. Yeah, man. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, man. Okay. Yes, question. No, never mind. No, it's not really that important. Okay, in verse 6 of chapter 7, it says Noah was
1: 600 years old when the flood waters came on the earth. Yes. In the first month is that his six hundred and first year bike oh, on wow. the ark for a, a, a year and, a year and, and so many months. And okay. so then I was yeah. just seeing that his wife and his son's wives with him and every beast and then all their families came off the ark. So like they had children and
0: yeah, I mean, on the earth. if you're on a three-hour tour and it ends up being a year, and there's nothing to do in that ark, I don't have to. I don't have to. We're all adults in the room. I don't have to tell you what what happens. Um, you know it, God said, "Multiply, <laughs> multiply." All right, let's let's talk about the sons here. Um, okay, Adam had. Let, for, for, the, for all intents and purposes, let's just look at the, the symbolism of the sons here. Adam, Cain, Abel, Seth. Okay, Seth was what? The seed. Okay, because Abel was the vapor, Cain was the bad guy, and so you got Seth. Okay, Noah had Ham, Shem, and Japheth. Okay, let's, Cain is cursed. So let's look here at Noah's descendants and find out what the real story was. So go to chapter 9, verse 18. This is where we see the humanity of Noah in the fact that he'd been saved by grace. God miraculously saved him through a flood. He worshiped God on dry land. And all of a sudden we see this story and we think, what in the world were you thinking, Noah? And it proves to us that these people are human. And that God continues to show grace in the midst of human sin. So let's look at Genesis 9, 18. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed, OK? and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it both on their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew that his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servant shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be a servant. Okay. What does Ham do here? It's not so much that he saw his dad naked, okay? Sometimes that'll happen, right? I'm just saying in the course of time, a little boy walks in and see, you know, we're being adults here tonight, but I mean, what the actual Hebrew meant is that it was almost like a pornographic voyeurism that Ham didn't just walk in and go, oh, I probably better leave my dad alone. It was like he continued to gaze upon his dad. That was what the sin was. It was more of a purient, gazing if you look back at the original language because you know the other two brothers what they do they walked backwards and put the cloak over him so they wouldn't see him and then he wakes up and the interesting thing here is he doesn't curse Ham he curses Ham's son Canaan now I don't know if I have a really good answer for that. Maybe those of you with the ESV study Bible notes or other ones would, would, would maybe have why it wasn't Ham but Canaan. But what do we know? from? Let's just talk here. Regardless of why it was Canaan and not Ham, let's start with a motif here that will carry us through the rest of the Old Testament. Who are the Canaanites? They are the people inhabiting the promised land that are the arch enemy of Israel. All the way through the Old Testament, Israel is always coming against the Canaanites. And so, from right here, from the very beginning, we have the birth of the, the Canaanites, the, the enemy. Okay, and so let's look at um, out of Canaan comes the three, if you read the Old Testament, who are the four major enemies of Israel? Egypt. It never goes well when Israel's in Egypt or want to go back to Egypt. Nothing good happens in Egypt. Number two, the Philistines. We know who the Philistines are, right? Goliath. The Babylonians and then the Assyrians. The Assyrians were the the, the nation that came in and took them captive before the Babylonians, the northern kingdom. We'll talk about that when we get further down the road. So out of Canaan comes the arch enemies, the nations that are arch enemies of Israel. Out of Japheth, Persia, Macedonia, Greece, and Rome, not necessarily enemies of Israel per se, but more of your European, Rome, Greece, that type of cultures and nations come from Japheth, okay? Out of Shem comes Abraham and the Israelites to bless the whole world. So who's the chosen, out of all the sons of Noah, who's the chosen son? Who's the seed going to be carried through? Is it going to be through Ham? No, he's cursed. Is it going to be Japheth? He's going to be enlarged, and we find out later on. What, when we, remember when we studied Daniel? Um, you know, All those major nations that came from like Greece and Rome, um, they're going to be large nations, but ultimately Shem is the one that's going to be the seed because Abraham is going to come and bless the world. All right, how much time do we have left here? Let's, we can finish off with the Tower of Babel. Because I don't want to start Abraham maybe until next week. So let's start with the Tower, or not start, let's finish off with the Tower of Babel. Let's read this story. Because really, let me just kind of tell you something here. Genesis is divided into two parts. Episode 1, if you will, if you're a Star Wars fan, or you know, the the prequel, Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 12 through 50 is episode 2. The book is divided into two major movements. Okay, Genesis 1 through 11 and then Genesis 12 through 50 is kind of the way the book's divided up. So we'll, we'll finish episode one tonight with the Tower of Babel. Now let's look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Stop, Shinar, Babylon. Not Babylon yet because it's not a nation yet, but the same geographic area modern-day Iraq, slain of Shiran, Babylon. Verse 3, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they, they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. They said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down, and therefore confuse their language, so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the whole face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore its name was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of the earth. Okay, what was God's command from the very beginning, after the flood, even before the flood, Adam and Eve? What? Go populate, subdue the earth. Go fill the earth. Don't hang out in one geographic spot. What did they do? They all hung out in one geographic spot when God said, no, don't do that. I want you to subdue the earth. So they, they, they didn't obey God's command to, to fill the earth. They go on the plain of Shinar, which, by the way, The plain of Shinar is the same place where King Nebuchadnezzar built his golden statue later on in the book of Daniel. So a lot of sinister things happen on the plain of Shinar. Genesis 9.1, let's go back. What was God's blessing? God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was the blessing. That was the the command. Fill the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Don't just hang out in one geographical area. We're going to go on the plain of Shinar and hang out there. What's the significance of a tower? Why build a tower or a ziggurat, as I said last week? What's a tower? What is a tower attempting to do? There's a lot of symbolism here. To be be what? To (laughs) To be higher up. To build something with our own hands, to try to reach up to God. Here's the significance of a tower. It represents man's attempts to somehow get to God if I could just build a tower tall enough to get to God to be God myself to have power myself I don't want to obey God's command to subdue the earth let's try to just you know if we can just all concentrate here and build the the, the great high rise in the sky and just keep going up it represents pride fame immortality self-sufficiency in their own achievements and the irony, God still has to come down to it. Didn't get very high, did it? It's kind of like God's like, okay, I kind of see it down there. Let me come down and see your puny little pathetic tower that you're trying to build. By the way, I created the world with the power of my word, and you're creating a tower. Now, let's think about something here for a moment with the tower. God confuses them, and literally the word babel means confusion. When you babble, it's confusing. Let's talk about Pentecost for a moment. We we talked about this a few months ago when we were in Acts. At Pentecost, what happened? All the different languages of the known world came together in one place. In Babylon, one language came to one place, and God scattered them in judgment. All the languages came together in one place, but God poured out his spirit and they spoke in one in language that they could all hear and then God scattered them to bless them to go send the gospel out. So Pentecost is Babel, I don't want to say in reverse, but Babel redeemed. redeemed. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah, I, I will ascend. Yeah, here, here, here's, let's look at two, let's, talk, let's just end here with man-made religion. Okay, man-made religion versus God's grace. We talked last week about Adam and Eve tried to fix their guilt. Okay? How do they fix their guilt? I'm going to fashion for myself fig leaves to deal with my own problem. It's what I can do. It's what I can conjure up. It's what I can fix because I'm guilty. I, I'm sinful. I've got to do something to somehow make it right. So I'm going I'm to do something. Okay, The tower of Babel is their attempt to inflate themselves and be God. And so here's what the tower says. The tower says, what must I do, what must I do to get to God? And all religions of the world start with that premise besides Christianity. What must I, in my power, somehow do to ascend to either please this God, become a God, do enough good works, do enough things? I've got to be doing something, and I don't even know if I've done enough to somehow get to the point where I please whatever God I believe in, or I become that God. How is Christianity different? Christianity is not what must I do... Christianity is God took the initiative and came down. He left heaven in Christ in the incarnation, came down to us, humbled himself on the cross, and came and died in our place and did what we could never do. So Christianity is about what Christ has what? Done. And I've said this a lot, and I I say this in my class when I teach at CCU because I want these students to get this, and I've said it many times from the pulpit. It's a little slogan But here it is. I'll write it on here. Salvation is not an achieving, but it is a receiving. What do I mean by that? Salvation is not an achieving, but it is a receiving. I can't do anything to save myself. I can't do enough good works. I can't obey the Ten Commandments enough. I can't say enough prayers. I can't go to church enough. I can't achieve anything. I can't build my tower. I can't make my fig leaves. But all world religions say, you've got to do something. We're hardwired in our sinful state to want to do something to deal with the sin problem. What can I achieve? What can I do? Instead, salvation is a receiving. We receive what Christ has done for us. Christ came to us. Christ died for us. God took the initiative. Christ came down. It's simply a matter of receiving the gift that Christ paid for for us to do. That's why Christianity is so radical and why so many people have problems with it because everybody thinks, what must I do? Remember the the rich young ruler? Or the the Nicodemus, what must I do? Or the rich young ruler, what must I do to inherit? What must I do? You can't do anything. It's all what God has done for you in Christ. You simply receive it by faith as a gift of God. All right, that's probably a good place to stop. Next week, we're going to start with Abraham. Are there any final questions in the last few minutes we have together? Hopefully this room worked out a little bit better. It's a little bit bigger and... All right. No questions then. No comments or snide remarks. I have a this questions? Um I will I will keep coming with new handouts for you each week so cuz I may add stuff to it so as I as I go. So don't be afraid to email me or catch me or if you have any other questions. So let me let me pray for us and then we'll um, then we'll be dismissed. Father, thank you for again um, just understanding your grace and Lord as we think about uh, especially the tower of babel. I'm just I'm always just reminded in the story of how prideful we can be and thinking that somehow we can do something for you, God. We can build something or achieve something or, or somehow please you in our own works. And Father, we can't do that at all. It's simply Christ alone. And so Jesus, thank you for dying for us. Thank you for coming down from heaven, becoming a man living on the earth being obedient to death on a cross, humbling yourself, dying in our place, taking the wrath of God, rising again, being at the right hand of the Father, being our one mediator, and doing all the work and crying out to just finish, Jesus. We thank you for that, that you alone are worthy of our salvation. You alone are worthy of praise, and, and, and we can't boast. All we can boast in is you, that you've done it all. So thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Yes? Is the same as teak? Teak? Yeah. Um.